0: In today's episode of Project Recovery...
2: You know, I'm at this crossroads if I'm getting these headaches and I'm also overwhelmed and everything just feels like suffocating. This little pill was given to me and I didn't, But you know, once it was coursing through my chemistry, everything just felt better.
0: Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery and it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. Now, Dr. Matt, when we talk about Know Your Script, uh, we've had a lot of guests on this show who wish they had a program like this back uh, in the day and they might not be where they are if they did have a program like that. Does that make sense?
3: Oh, completely. I think it's one of the best educational programs out there to help people, families, Learn about medications, what's safe, what's not, how to talk to your doctors about it and really to have a plan to keep your home safe from extra meds, get rid of them.
0: Now you used a word that I really kind of want to kind of talk a little bit more about and that's education and that's what this podcast is and that's what the recovery world and everybody needs in general is a little better education because a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, we're coming into without any knowledge and we're right. trying to figure it out just like everybody else is and so when we can educate ourselves about the medications that we're taking, if we can educate ourselves what our loved ones are going through when they're battling addiction if we can edge our, educate ourselves of family members of what they are to expect when someone who's battling addiction goes through that's what we really want to do with this podcast is educate we don't have no clear cut answers for anybody out there because I figure recovery is something that you need to find on your own we want to be a resource we want to be able to help you find things that might work in your recovery but we I've said it from the very get go this podcast will not make Make you sober, Right. That's not what this is, because we can't make you sober. You can make yourself sober. And that's the only person that can do it. I remember I was talking to uh, this lady the other day about, you know, my recovery. And um, I tried to quit for my wife. I tried to quit for my kids. I tried to quit for my family. I tried to quit for your job, my job. Yeah. And it wasn't until I decided myself that I'm getting sober for me, that it made sense. Now, on this podcast, Dr. Matt, we talk about memes or sayings that they have in the recovery world that sometimes are kind of silly. but I read a little cheesy, one, but not I, untrue. I read, a, I read a meme that really made my recovery make sense to me. And it said, I gave up everything for one thing. Now I'm giving up one thing so I can have everything. Oh, I like that. I like that. And in its purest form, that's what recovery is. And I've said it so many times, and I'm not proud when I say this. I fought harder for alcohol in my life than I did for anything, which is sad. What do you mean by that? You fought for it. Uh, When people would tell me that... Alcohol is ruining your job, ruining your life. I fought to keep alcohol in my life. I swore up and down that alcohol wasn't the problem.
3: So you, you fought for it by hiding it, justifying it, what?
0: Rather than just admitting that alcohol was yeah. the problem.
3: You, that, you kind of forced it back in. Yeah, it was like, said it can work. we're
0: having fights not because of alcohol, we're having fights because we're having fights. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not happy with my job, not because, you know, the work sucks, it's because does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so now, to, for me to be able to have all these things, I had to give up one thing.
3: I like that. No, I, I think that's that's brilliant. Just one thing. Yeah. And I was fighting to keep that one thing in my life while losing everything. <laughs> that's That's definitely a clear sign of an addiction, right? It's irrational, completely irrational behavior that you would... Destroy all the important things in your life to keep this one destructive thing in your life. But that's what people do when they're, you know, in that addict mindset. You know, it seems like it makes sense at the time. Oh, it made 100%. Everyone else is like, Easy to see how irrational and crazy that behavior is.
0: But we've had so many people who sat in this very chair, talked into this very microphone, and talked about things that they thought they would never be doing, but they were doing them. From selling their body, to sleeping on the floors, to sleeping in parks, to (sighs) robbing family members.
3: Yeah, stealing. All to feed their fix. All violating all of their own personal moral codes in order to keep that one thing in their life.
0: And... When it comes down and you've got some sobriety under your belt, you can look back and go, how stupid was that? Pretty stupid. I also wanted to talk a little bit about the video we posted online last week. And it's about me being angry about the alcoholic term.
3: Oh, right. Yeah, that uh, seemed to have... Gotten a lot of people's attention.
0: And uh, a lot of people reached out to me and said, hey, look, you're doing good. Mm -hmm. And I didn't say that because I wanted people to say, hey, you're doing good or look how far you're going. I just was talking about that because it bugged me. Mm -hmm. And there was things that I've done in my past that I'm ashamed of. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you right now, I will look you in the eye, I am proud of the guy I am right now. I'm not proud of the things I've done, but I'm proud of where I've been and where I am, and I'm not ashamed to be who I am. For the longest time right out of my recovery, I was hoping somebody wouldn't mention uh the problem because then we would kind of just ignore it. Or I would bring it up just to kind of take the sail- wind out of their sail. But now I'll stand up in a room of anybody. I will go anywhere and tell you, hey, I'm in recovery, and I'm okay with it. And if you're not, that's your problem. It's
3: not my problem. Well, I think that um – um I think people showing their support on on social media for what you were saying uh, was because they want to encourage you. But I think that a lot of times the advice I read that people give on social media is maybe what they hope someone would say to them as well. Like it's a projection of their own stuff. And I think a lot of those people that were telling you, keep it up, good job, don't give up, I think they're doing the same thing. They're living the same experience. Or hoping to live the same experience that you're having, and so uh, I think that's great. I love the fact that we have so many people that will go on social media and encourage you, because partly they like you, and they and they want to see you keep being, um, you know the the voice for for the movement of of sobriety and, and recovery, but also because that that's that's what they're doing. That's part of their experience too. And and I don't want to sound ungrateful
0: because I am grateful for the kind words, and I love. Oh, that. I know you are. But yeah. but what but, but I I. I I I didn't want people to think that I was virtual signaling. Because there's a lot of people in this industry that do virtual signaling. And it's actually a coping coping mechanism for a lot of addicts Mm -hmm. who will do this virtual signaling so that they can get some love and distract from what the real problem is. And and, and I didn't want anyone to think that I was doing that. I am so grateful for this podcast. I am so grateful for everybody who's followed me and supported me. I'm even grateful for those who
3: doubted me because they gave me fuel. And I appreciate that. I was going to say, it's it's not all love. No, <laughs> it's not. No, it's <laughs> on not. social media, I think it keeps you keeps us all humble enough, you know. But and, yeah.
0: and 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 for that, I'm eternally grateful. But you know, I I love this community. I love our Facebook page. I love our Instagram. I love everything that goes on into it. And when I end all my posts now, I've been saying, "I love you," and I mean it, and I truly do mean
3: it. And just for the listeners, you've been saying that for years. I when that, I first got into
0: radio 20 yeah. years ago, I'd hang up and go, I love you. And uh, the host called me and goes, hey, you said you loved me. And I go, yeah. You guys don't end your calls like that? And they go, no. no. <laughs> I go, I'm going to keep doing it because yeah. that's me.
3: And, and yeah, so. that's that's your style. And, and I think we all feel it when we're hanging around with you. And even the people that are just listening to the show feel it. So, All right, well, let's get on to our guest. Our guest
0: today is somebody that I've been trying to get on the podcast right. for the past four months. I'm going to leave you with this teaser. She's best friends with my ex-wife, Oh. and she's got a story to tell. Is she going to dish a little? Stick around. More Project Recovery will be right back.
1: I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. Now, I left you guys with a little tease. I said, our guest today, we've been trying to get on for months. She's also the best friend of my ex-wife. Right. I'd like to introduce you to Tony Carroll. How are you?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: So now, we were just joking off air when the mics were rolling, and you were a little bit more outspoken. And then all of a sudden, when oh, the mics I... went on, you got a little quiet. Are, are you nervous about this?
2: Yeah, I'm nervous. Yeah.
0: And now, have you ever told your story on a platform like this?
2: No. Okay, and I think
0: you've got a great story, and we're really excited to hear it. But, Dr. Matt, I want to read you a text that she sent me. And this (laughs) is when I knew Tony's my kind of girl. All right. She's got a sense of humor, (laughs) and she's working a strong recovery. But she said, I said, are you afraid to do the podcast? She goes, I'm not afraid. Unfortunately, I lost all my shame and dignity sitting in jail for four months. I mixed Easy Mac with uh, jalapeno Cheetos and colored pencils as eyeliner and lipstick. Wow.
2: To name a few.
0: And uh, we're going to get to that in just a second, but let's find out
3: the story of Tony. How does it begin?
2: Oh, wow. Okay.
3: Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and the family that you grew up in.
2: Okay. Just from Ogden. Um, single mom. Dad ran off when I wasn't born yet, but I was made. Um. It was me and my mom and my brother most of, like halfway through my childhood and my mom got remarried and they had a kid and my stepdad was in the picture and...
0: Did my, you have a good relationship with your stepdad?
2: Not really. He's nice, but he was always pretty guarded. He also has had... He drank while I was young and and... That was kind of ugly. I, I don't know that I could say he was an alcoholic or anything, but there was drinking and arguing a little bit. But
3: and we've know. talked about on the show that uh, especially alcohol, but really anything that that you're intoxicated with uh, sort of creates a barrier or a distance between you and your, connect, your ability to connect with other people. And I don't know if that's uh, your friends. Maybe that's not a big deal, but trying to parent – and be an addict at the same time, or even if he wasn't, just drinking on a regular basis um, creates sort of an emotional barrier between you and the people you're trying to connect with. So I think a lot of times people grow up not feeling very close to their parents or step parents if they did uh, drugs, smoked weed a lot, drank a lot. So maybe that was part of it was he just wasn't emotionally available and physically available right. to connect with you.
0: And I've heard that that firsthand with my oldest daughter, Presley, and kind of her letter. And you can hear that. You know, I thought I was checking all the boxes uh, when she was young. I mean, I was there, but I was never
3: present. Physically there, right? You show up to the ballet recital. You show up to the soccer game, whatever.
0: Alcohol in my breath, glassy eyes. But
3: emotionally, you can't. You, you literally can't be there because you're off – you're at a different emotional plane. Different level. Yeah.
0: And so, I mean, I, I I think that's true. And people will ask me, what's the best part about your recovery? And it's the honest connections I have with my family and my loved ones. And I really, truly cherish that. So back to Tony's story. Your dad, stepdad was in the picture, but you, you weren't great.
2: Yeah, basically I, my mom raised me. My mom and my older brother.
0: And uh, then you had a younger sibling as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, you went to high school with my ex-wife. Yes. And uh, when did you party at all in high school?
2: No, I was so in seeing my family and my extended family and just their kind of lack of morals, values. I wanted, from an early age, I knew I wanted this good, wholesome life. Like I wanted the traditional family. I wanted my kids to have a mom and a dad, I wanted the home cooked meals. Like, cause I always wanted that, so I couldn't wait to give it to somebody else. And I,
3: what I, were you seeing in your extended family? Like, what do you? What kind of prompted that drive for you?
2: Um. Well, my stepdad drank. I had a cousin that lived with me for a year, and she would come home from her weekend parties, um, on drugs. I'm not sure what. And I felt I could feel the darkness of it when she'd come in our house. I could I could feel it and I could feel it. And my stepdad, I could it was a darkness. And then I go to my friends' houses who were, you know, LDS and two parent and not they're abstaining from all that stuff and I was just like ping, that's my route. Other that felt that. good to you. Yep. Yeah. That's the route. They're still married, they're substance free.
3: So stability, really, like you were seeing I have okay. a I have a family that's not quite saw, stable. Yeah,
2: there's value in that. There's not value in the other. Mm-hmm. And I saw that really young. And so I never did I was legitimately the designated driver all through high school.
3: Sounds like you were making a conscious decision <laughs> to sure. stay away from mm-hmm. those things.
2: And I really prided myself on I was on the cheer team and I, I prided myself on being an example for everyone. I was like Because wow. they say that, you know, you're you're an example for the school, you should mm-hmm show like you know how students should be how we should act how we should you know present ourselves and i that, that's always been important to me like
0: to be
3: a know, role I model to be a role and i, model. I th- yes. you do you think that's true i think that's true like that's those me? kids well kids yes. in those positions people are watching them right mm-hmm. the younger kids coming up i remember mm-hmm. um you know growing up in a small town and kind of uh idolizing admiring some of the the athletes mm-hmm. and student government people older than me and and probably whatever they did, I thought was pretty cool. So you took that role seriously, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: So pretty straight-laced all through high school. Uh, cheerleader, role model, taking it very serious.
2: Yes. Wow, I didn't mess up once.
0: Getting good grades?
2: Yeah, great grades. Nice. Yeah.
0: Where does it go nice. after high school?
2: Went, followed my, well, tried on a, d- a couple of different colleges and then ended up following my brother up to Logan and...
0: Utah State, home of the Utah Aggies. Utah State, yep. I was there, five years, almost graduated.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hang out with,
0: yeah. And hang so, out with
2: some of our joint friends. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so you're, you're up there at Utah State, and were you going into a certain field, or were you kind of just trying to find uh, your way in life?
2: Well, I was studying to become a nurse, mixed with way too much snowboarding and skipping school.
0: Up at Beaver Mountain? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. it's a ga- great hill. Yeah. seaholsters are awesome. Yeah. And so uh, you graduate. Or did you did you fall in love?
2: I f- met Jake through a joint, my now husband, through a joint, my brother's roommate, and fo- followed him to Salt Lake, <laughs> basically. And we got married and...
0: Married in the temple?
2: Yep. Married in the temple.
0: Cover of Enzyme coming, huh? I mean, so far, it sounds like you're doing everything that you set yourself up for.
2: I... I did everything. By the book. That I thought I was supposed to do to be happy and to have a good life. And I, and I did.
0: <laughs> Until you didn't. And so yeah. how, how, does, how, does, how does that go?
2: So I get married. I get pregnant kind of quickly and unexpectedly, which was fine. I rolled with it. Happens. Yeah. And so at that point, we just thought, well, I've had one you know, she's almost a year. Let's just keep going, you know? So, and I loved it. Loved being pregnant, loved the babies. I loved it all. And I just, but I didn't really have a great example of a marriage and a mom running a home and raising kids from home. And so I was just kind of just trying to do it all.
3: And, you know, that is so true That, that we don't really realize how much growing up we absorb those examples of the adults in our lives. So when you don't grow up with, you you were wanting that two-parent home, it sounds like your whole life growing up with a loving mom and dad, but when you don't have that as your example, then when you're in that position, you, you kind of realize, oh, my tool belt's kind of empty. I don't have the tools in here. It's hard, and so it probably felt extra difficult because you didn't sort of have those natural things to draw on that you would have maybe, You know, ideally would have seen if you had two parents that were, you know, both active, good uh, parents in your home. How young were you? You have to make it up yourself. You know, you have to figure it out. How young were you when you had your first?
2: 24.
0: And then a second by 25?
2: No, every other year. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so you think about that. And I can look back on my life, and uh, that's the only experience that I can really draw from. But at 24 and 25, I was in no shape, mentally, Mm -hmm. physically, financially, to be able to start a family. And I wouldn't even know where to begin. And so that's a lot of pressure to put on a young couple and for somebody who's trying to figure it out.
3: It's funny around here, our culture in Utah, of course, is still to get married young and have, have kids at a young age. And maybe there's some benefit to that because you're younger and you have some energy to do, to deal with the kids. But the reality is you don't have the experience. And uh, 24, 25 is still very young. You're still figuring life out for yourself. Your brain development has just barely started to kind of be finished at that age. And uh, I think as time goes on, people are realizing maybe it's a little bit better to have some experience before we jump into having kids but i i mean 24 i was sort of expecting you to say younger because of how you were telling the story a lot of people around here have kids when they're 21 you oh, yeah. know yeah so kids every other year how many how many kids did you have total i have 5 5 kids wow you
0: really did it <laughs> <laughs> and so every other year you're doing that and at this time are you using your nursing degree are you also working
2: so <clears throat> i'm one Semester. I know I, I dropped oh, so the nursing So you're close to it. Too. No, I dropped the nursing thing because I was pregnant and I knew I wanted to stay home and raise my kids. I, I did. i That's what I wanted to do. You don't to have do. to
0: apologize for that. I mean, this and is your life. you I mean, it sounds like whatever you wanted, you went for. And if you were able to do it, that's a great thing.
2: Well, and I had some good input on my outside from actually like moms and mother in laws and People in my life that were like, if if that's what you want, don't you know, just go for it. And if if you get this degree, you'll be using it your whole life. And I knew you know, looking back that probably was a mistake, but
3: <laughs> Do you wish you had gotten your degree? Is that what you're saying?
2: I don't know. Okay. Um I mean I I'm one semester away from a psychology degree. I just Changed it to psychology because that was really interesting, but there's been times where I'm like, it would be nice if I had a degree because I could go work because we need money mm. a lot of times, but I think I'd continue to work and I'd go that route. I mean, if I could use it and I could make good money, I I would. So,
3: Well, it's it- interesting. Sometimes we look back on those things and second guess ourselves, but in the end, I guess it's we do what we do and... I, I, it doesn't sound like you feel regretful of having your kids.
2: I don't, and I don't regret. I. Yeah. It's very important to me to stay at home to raise them. I know there a lot of good things come from that, and
3: yeah, a lot of, a lot of good so things. So for me, i like, sure. hey, it
2: would be nice if I had it. Maybe I'd use it, but I don't think I'd be doing anything different. And I'm also feel very educated, so I, I yeah. feel content.
0: It's all good. So five kids now.
2: So I have four. Uh huh. And then my addiction happened. Mm -hmm.
0: So when you say your addiction happens, because this is someone that you've said by your own admission.
2: Yeah, I hadn't touched. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't know what a a painkiller was. I didn't. I didn't know it was heroin in pill form. I had no idea.
0: Well, I remember I'd
2: gotten prescribed them when I had babies and you know you take them i don't i don't even remember if i took them
0: you know what it's interesting that she says that because you know and, and what i do now if i'm out talking to people and we talk about past experiences and about some of the drugs and the things that i've done and all that stuff and i'll say well i've never done heroin and they go yeah you have and i go no i'm pretty sure i've never done heroin i would know if i did heroin <laughs> and they go you ever taken a pain pill and i was like yeah and he goes that's heroin and it, 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 no in in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a in a different
3: a, Chemical form, yeah. I was like,
0: yeah. "Oh, but I understand what she says." Right? I didn't know what a pain pill was. I didn't know what I didn't know the power of it. I mean, I think <sighs> back definitely. then a lot of people were oblivious to what actually it and was. That goes
3: back to our sponsorship on Know Your Script. I mean, that's that's the education that people need, and that you didn't have, and I didn't have, and you didn't have. When we were you know, young and being prescribed things for surgeries or whatnot, you, we, nobody had explained it, that it's an it's an opiate and that and, and heroin's an opiate. And and here's why it's dangerous. And here's why, you know, how to use it properly and and empowering people to to know how to talk to their doctors or prescribers about it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's surprisingly dangerous and powerful. Yet in the past, it was just given out like like anything. Like a, like a Tylenol.
0: So, what was the reason you took your first pain pill?
2: So I was I was having really bad headaches, and and they were just debilitating. And I had four. like migraines. Mm-hmm. Debilitating, you know, just con- and constant, even just not just constant head pressure. And I still have four kids, and life
0: goes on. I need through to-
2: all of my parenting. I didn't learn. Again, I didn't – I came from a single mom essentially who did everything. So I was just doing everything. I thought I could do everything and my husband should just be able to work and play and I'll do everything. I got the home. Like I don't work so that's my job. So I'm just having babies and holding them and nursing them and making dinner and just trying to do it all. And then I get these headaches and it's like – um. I still have to do X, Y, and Z, and at the time, my best friend was also a doctor, and so it was suggested we should try that and I didn't even question it it wasn't her fault it wasn't anyone's fault I didn't know I'm pride myself on being naive you know I've never taken anything I never do any I've never done anything I don't even want to know about it
3: and your intention wasn't to abuse the substance your intention was to get some relief from your headaches, right
2: right I didn't I didn't know what it was. I thought it was like Tylenol, but a little stronger, you know?
3: Yeah, it's a little stronger. <laughs> and,
0: and and when you took it, did it help with the headaches?
2: Yeah. Oh, for sure. And it was instant. Like, yeah, pretty much instant addiction. Like, really? Oh, my pain was so bad. It was so long and so chronic. I mean, just months and months of just tight head, just pounding heads and
3: have you ever had a migraine Casey we ever had a real migraine? No. okay so I have and actually not to the to the to chronicity that you are describing I haven't had it for months but I've had it where it shuts me down for a day and I can just tell you right now that is one of the most not just miserable experiences but it makes you feel kind of crazy like mm-hmm. you just can't function and mm-hmm. to try to raise children have any other responsibility Uh, I just can't imagine it.
2: Right. Well, and what I didn't realize at the time was all of that was just all this emotional stuff I was just stuffing. I was just a stuffer all those years. You know, well, ooh, that's a little bit not okay with me. I better stuff that. Ooh, that kind of hurt my feelings. I better stuff that. Ooh, I don't feel like I can do this, but I should. Okay, I'll do it. Stuff that. You know, I was just holding on to stuff and I was manifesting in just tension all I was just holding all in here. It was like just this big weight on top of my head.
0: Well, it's like taking a two-liter bottle and shaking it up. Eventually, the pressure's got to come out
3: somewhere. And what people need to understand is, you know, psychological and emotional things are also physical. They, they, well, You connected. can't have a thought. You can't have a, a feeling without a, a neuro connection going off in your brain. And so when you say you are a stuffer, people who are stuffers, and lots of us are, eventually a physical pressure builds inside and it has to come out somewhere and somehow. And it comes out differently in different people, but headaches are very common for people who stuff, stuff, stuff because you're building a physical pressure inside your body. It's not just psychological. It's not just emotional. There really is no difference. It's just two sides of the same coin. Right, well
2: it's just energy that's being and just needs to go somewhere. It needs to be expressed. It needs to be felt. It needs to be dealt with. It can't just be held, you know, in your gut all the time.
0: Right. So you have these crazy headaches. Uh suggestion of a doctor, friend says you might want to try this. You take a pill, instantaneously you feel better. Yep. And you also say instantaneously you felt like you were hooked.
2: Well, I was, feel like I was at this place, and I was in a struggling place, just overwhelmed and just exerted to the bone. You know, just kid after kid after kid, and moving and building houses and just doing all the things, and just being awesome all the time. It was exhausting.
0: No, I I, <laughs> and, I, I, I can see it, and
2: it kind of got to where I was like, well, I, you know, I need to let some stuff go. I need to maybe. Ask for more help. I need to speak my mind a little more. I need to take care, better care of myself.
0: Well, I was going to say in, that, and I'm not a therapist, but Dr. In, but Dr. Matt would say this is where self care is well, very,
2: but yes, needed. But that many years ago,
0: we didn't talk about self care. Talk
2: and therapy. People do not talk about going to therapy or their, anything. No. So, but instead of you know, I'm at this crossroads. If I'm getting these headaches and I'm also overwhelmed and everything just feels like suffocating. This little pill was given to me, and I didn't. But you know, once it was coursing through my chemistry, everything just felt better.
0: So, how long were you doing uh, the pills for? Because you said this was your first time in addiction.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: And, and so, after the first, how long was that going? And did your family notice anything different? And you did your kids, did your friends, or did they just did you just kind of go? I I found a I found a cheat code. <laughs>
2: Um, it was about a year and it was a joint thing with this friend of mine. We were, we became in it together. Uh So it was just real easy and real, it was just really easy.
0: And so you're, you're using with a friend.
2: So my husband kind of caught on and was like, you two are being weird. Got in my texts or email, I can't remember, but text or something and was like, what's going on? And then I think he ran my, like, prescription history from the pharmacy and there it was, you know.
3: What was he noticing? Why would, what tipped him off to be concerned?
2: I think just me and this friend being, it, he just knew something Thick was off. Thick as thieves? He just knew something was off.
3: Oh, okay.
0: And so he runs your history uh, and does he bring it to you and go, hey, let's let's have a talk. Explain this to me.
2: Yeah. And then, of course, I'll you, stop. It's over. I stopped. It's over. Whatever. Did you stop? No. I mean lots of weird stuff happened. The friend is no longer in the picture and so I didn't have a way to get him. So I'd steal him wherever I could, whenever I could, just randomly here and there. I'd go weeks and months without him and then i find him again. Oh, cool. have a good week.
0: And see, that's what we talked about. You weren't in here for the first part of the podcast is that here's somebody who was a role model, straight laced, did everything right. And now is later describing of how she would steal and probably from family, from friends. And, 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 I, and I don't say that to put you on blast, oh, but right. it's it's something mm-hmm. that you never would envision yourself doing. Well, something and, that has that much control over you, making you do stuff that you know morally is not right for you.
2: Right. Well, and I'm also a perfectionist. I'm hard on myself, really hard. And I'm, you know, I'm anxious. I'm always in my head. And, you know, they turn you into that person you wish you were, you'd doesn't care about anything and is lighthearted and fun and can let everything go and super confident. And those are things that I have to work really hard at. And so, and then I have this, this image. I'm so, I've always been, always been very likable, very accepted. I've always belonged. I've always been popular. I've always been dated, you know, like I never really had any, anybody think anything bad about me that mattered. Mm Mm-hmm. And so now I'm like this is literally the worst thing someone could do and I'm doing it and no one can ever find out because my life will be over.
0: I got this image, I got this reputation, people look up to me and
2: well all of it and my my husband will leave me, I'll lose my kids, I'm in mean, all of it. I'm like I have to fight for this. You know, you have to fight for your life and protect yourself for everything. Mhm. So then the fear of losing And the fear of the truth of what you're doing and who you are right now, and it's not you. It's like you can't even admit it because you can't even believe it yourself. Mm -hmm. And so having all the people that you love and admire and have always loved and admire you find out that you're an addict, an addict. but it's it feels so much worse than an addict that that you're phony, that you're messed up, that you're crazy, that you have issues, that you're struggling in life. All of that stuff is humiliating. Well, what was the
3: meme, the recovery meme you, you said? So I saw this thing
0: on the Facebook the other day. That's where I get my news. And it said, <laughs> I gave up everything for one thing. Now I give up one thing so I can have everything.
3: And that just reminded me of what you're saying, that you're on the verge of giving up everything, you know, worrying about losing your husband and your children and having everybody have a, a very different and, and negative opinion about you for this one thing, just to keep – you're risking all of that just to keep this one, the pill addiction going. Mm-hmm. So how does it uh, does it end uh, with this first? This well, first. People run?
2: start noticing. I'm stealing pills from them. They kind of start talking. Someone tells my husband. I deny it. I say I'll stop. I do for a minute. Pick it up. You know, find some more get caught again
3: and that's <laughs> then, like a sign then, of the addiction is your radar's out all the time right like you said you could go some days or weeks without using but your radar's always paying attention to am i in a house where they might have pills you know i'm gonna go use the restroom and search through the medicine and before cabinet, i go to
0: the and, bathroom do i look in the medicine oh cabinet? for sure yeah you know, i mean i think
3: that's part of that that addiction makes you hypersensitive you're always on the hunt to find it right so neighbors and friends and people start talking And it gets. Oh,
2: and then I get uh, criminal charges for stealing.
0: Oh, somebody pressed charges.
3: Yeah, how did that
2: happen? I don't. They stole. I admitted it. They pressed charges. I admitted it. Like these
3: are just like friends, neighborhood, that sort of thing.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. A a neighbor, yeah. Yeah.
0: And so you get criminal charges, and this is the cheerleader.
2: Well, and then also this friend of mine is has her own issues in, investigation going and so and they know i'm part of it and so they came and talked to me and i i i didn't i admitted my part and so i had charges you know i didn't even fight it i'm just like it's this, this the truth like I, it is
0: so is that when you spent the four months in jail not yet okay
2: so I got I got put in a drug court program, which I was told this is super great. Um it well I went to treatment. I mean the white knuckling it on and off went on for probably six months. And I got in an argument with my husband about all of this and I just was in such a bad place. And, you know, no pills anywhere because I'm white-knuckling and mm-hmm. I'm doing good. Yeah. Um, so I drink and drive with the kids and I get a DUI. And, you know, that was it. That was it. I'm like, well, I'm either getting help or I should kill myself. I don't know because
0: – And, you know, it, 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 when, you, when you explain it that way and those are your two options, there's a lot of people – who are listening to this podcast? Who come to that being their only two options? Either I kill myself.
2: Well, but facing, looking in the mirror after I've put my kids in danger. Oh, I've done it. Yeah,
0: I know exactly what you're feeling, and, I, and I'm I'm hurting for you because I've done that, and that's 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 not a good feeling, and and, and I know that's not who you are, no. and 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 it, and it sucks. But when you think your only options are getting help or kill myself.
2: Well, and then I had my. My ward neighborhood posting my mugshot on Facebook and texting it, like they made a chain call through the whole ward list. They called child protective services on me, and they told people were telling them opposite stories. And my best friend was called and told I overdosed and died. It just it blew up, and it was like way. I mean, it was bad. I was bad. I was sick. I needed help. I was in a dark place, but. All of and I my,
3: but a lot of social shaming was going on. It sounds
2: like for me, the social shaming was so much harder than not using again, and it still is. I don't struggle not to use, but every single day I struggle with how much shame I feel. My, I lived in a really a really certain type of neighborhood. All the same houses, all the same people. And I was a very uncomfortable person and people said bad things about my kids. My kids stopped having friends. I mean it was just this chain of people talking and me hearing – getting back and hearing all these things that were – now I don't – now it's funny to me. But all this stuff that was like next level like putting uh, needles in my arms and dealing drugs, stealing them so I can sell them, driving to Salt Lake and buying them off the street. Overdosing, you know all this stuff that like real addicts so do. I'm gossip. Like, people were yeah.
3: gossiping about you within the neighborhood. And
2: for me, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not that, I'm not that bad. But now I know it's it's all we it's all the same. It doesn't matter what the form you're taking it or what you're taking or what you're doing. It's it's all the same. But it was
3: well. But I'm going to jump in there for a second though because it isn't it, when people gossip and when they shame each other. That's what holds this process of recovery back. It's what keeps things in the dark. It's why people hide it. And uh, that is something that you, if you're listening and you hear about, you you can control not gossiping. You can control not shaming your neighbors or your family members. You don't know what they're going through. And most likely what you're hearing isn't 100% true. And if it is, why don't you just turn around and give some support? Because that's what holds back our social progress in in educating and realizing anybody like how many times have we said it on this show addiction doesn't discriminate it does not discriminate anybody can find themselves who's
2: never touched anything right honestly if it can happen to me i truly believe it can happen to anyone i was so resolute to never make these choices.
0: And I bet if you went back and looked at that chain mail where people were sharing your mug shot and you looked into the history of those families, of those people sharing that, someone in their family, in at least one of those families, is dealing with addiction. We had a guy on the podcast when I got my DUI and my mug shot was plastered all over the news, all over Instagram, and I was on chain mails. And he was making fun of me and clowning me going, look, I'm not as bad as he you know what? After two DUIs, he sat in that chair and apologized to me. He goes, I didn't realize. And that's what I think Dr. Matt is saying is that when we see somebody in crisis, the best thing we can do is give them help, love, and empathy. Not shame, not gossip, and not share their picture. I mean it, – it, You're right, Dr. Matt. That's what this whole podcast is about. You know, to have you sit here. And it can't be fun for you to tell your story and have to relive this. But I asked you when we were walking in, why do you want to do this? And you gave the answer that most addicts give if I can help one person, then it's all worth it. And I'm so proud that you're here doing that. So from that, you end up after the DUI.
2: I go to treatment. I just went right into treatment.
0: And, and, Look for help.
2: Yep. Hardest, for sure, the hardest thing. I'd never been away from my kids for more than, I think, four nights ever. And it was hard. I went into treatment and pretty much nothing left. Like, well, I'm either going to do this or I'll come out and die. So I guess we'll see how this goes.
0: I had the same thought when I went in. I was like, I've tried everything I know. So let's see what you got.
2: Well, and honestly, the thought of driving back into that house in that neighborhood at that moment I was like I will I will I will be dead before I do that I will never go home I will never face that again and I mean I was just so shameful (laughs) but I did it I made it I worked really hard in treatment I was really lonely and I realized that like I haven't been alone in my head and in my thoughts. I haven't even thought about myself, and I haven't really cared or thought about. I've been completely disconnected from me because I've just kept having babies and giving and giving and and doing the things I thought like a a good strong woman and mother and wife does. But not feeding myself. I didn't even know myself. I just. Threw so do you think myself you found yourself life.
0: in that first rehab?
2: I started to, for sure. And I, it was my. I, this might be bad to admit, but one of the biggest things about rehab was just being with different people. I had always been with the same type of person. I, I didn't even. I wasn't even around people who swore. I the first. I remember being like, "This is too much swearing, too much talk of drugs, too much disrespect toward women. This is just. This is a bad." Environment. I've been told my whole life to avoid all of this, swearing, talking about drugs, talking to the other sex, you know, like being this open about your life. I'm not comfortable with any of this. And I was really, really scared of the people in treatment because they're addicts.
0: I'm not one of them.
2: I'm not one of them.
0: I said the same thing.
2: Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I got through it and I worked, worked really hard on myself. How many days you do? Thirty,
0: And after the 30, you went back home to the house you swore you'd never go.
2: Yeah, I did. And I did 90 days of... IOP. IOP. And I got put in this drug drug court program, Um, not really knowing what I was getting into. Being told that it would be, oh, it'll be fine. You're clean. It'll be fine. You'll you'll breeze through it because you're clean. Well... I didn't breeze through it even though I stayed clean. I was in this intense court program where literally I had too much water in my urine and I got a night in jail. I got too little blood or pee in my urine and I got community service. So then I... Had been taking, and I th- had told the drug court when I started that I was taking trazodone that my treatment center provided, that my doctor, who's an addiction specialist, gave me, and I see him still. It's a to common
3: common medicine. Uh, they, they
0: gave me trazodone in in my recovery as well. It was yeah. to help me sleep at night. They
2: gave it to me in treatment. Yeah, yeah. And so and told me to continue taking it. So yeah. I did, and I told this program. Well, about two months before I was about to graduate. Through this program, and I had done a couple of random two-nighter jail stays because I my creatinine was low. I had too much water. I have no body mass, and so I literally just couldn't drink water for a year. (laughs) And so I had taken a trazodone, and for whatever reason, it popped up as ecstasy, and they gave me four months in jail.
0: And there was no way to combat that.
2: Well, we tried everything because generally drug court is about not putting people in jail. And I had done so well. I, I besides the creatinine, yeah, like I had done really well. So, and people usually don't go to jail that long, but I did. He picked me, and I did it. And we, I mean, we tried everything. We, I, my, my doctors wrote. My therapist from treatment wrote, my therapist from after treatment wrote, all of my family and friends wrote in and they were just like, four months, she's doing well. She has family, all the, you know, but I sat there, got down to 85 pounds. I made it in jail for four months. And honestly, if I can do that, I can do anything. It was beyond horrible. Why? Well, for one, I was away from my kids and my husband. I had lost, I'm controlling, you know, I have to be in control of everything. I'm a perfectionist. I just had to let it all go. And, like, my kids were embarrassed. Like, people were saying, you know, your mom's in jail. Thanks, dance moms. Thanks, dance, for telling everybody that. You know, it, every other day... My kids' crying on the phone. it was horrible, and it just felt it felt so unfair, and maybe it was maybe it doesn't wasn't it doesn't matter i gained i did i gained so much ironically i wouldn't i wouldn't take it back.
0: isn't that crazy
2: well but, but really if
0: i mean can, i i i get it i I would sit in the rooms, doctor Matt, and some guy would stand up and he'd go. I wouldn't wish this disease upon my worst enemies, but I wouldn't change the fact that I got it for anything. And I sat there and I'd go, you are absolutely crazy. Uh, This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I will never be proudful of this. I will never – I'm getting so close to saying that because I am proud of who I am. I do love myself. And because of this experience, I'm more empathetic, I'm more loving, I'm more caring. And I am a better dad, a better friend, a better boyfriend, a better ex-husband, a better employee because of all that I went through. And I don't know I would be here today doing what I'm doing had it not been for my life's experiences.
3: Well, we I've said it before. Resistance promotes growth. And uh, if you don't have resistance in your life, you have a hard time growing and becoming the rich person with depth that you could become. And so, I think when a person says something like like what you're describing, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't give this up. I, I would, uh, you know, I appreciate the experience. It's because you've gotten to the point where you recognize the growth that's come from it, and that depth that it gives you as a human being. And uh, you know, there's some dance moms out there that don't have the depth. But you have it.
2: Well, and how lucky, in a sense. I mean, I got to go live with...
1: The, criminals. I mean, criminals. <laughs> yeah.
2: Like, live with them. Yeah. Like, hold them and cry with them and get strip searched with them. You know? And, like, I just I just decided, like, I have to make this the best that I can. And so I just would dive into the people in there. And I formed, like, really great bonds with people with no teeth and with people who lived up on the hill above the Capitol and we'd talk about it and they'd tell me all the things they've been through and they tell me about their kids and they tell me about their regrets and what they used to do and it was just so grounding to be like there is an ocean of beauty and every single person it doesn't matter if you have teeth because they're gone. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter and I thought addicts were so just so awful and then I looked at the, there was a girl particular in treatment that just had the most horrific childhood the most horrific I'll leave it at that and I thought and you're you're she had gotten addicted to meth as a teenager and then stayed clean for 10 years and then started drinking and I and I just thought, after all you went through as a child you're even still trying Why am I complaining? Like if any of us had gone through that, we wouldn't still be trying. And so it just completely taught me that you don't know why that person's there. And if if your grandpa had done what her grandpa had done to you, you would have been – you'd be sitting right here. You'd probably be, who knows, on a street with a needle in your arm or dead, probably just dead. Like you would have given up. And I think all of us addicts, my, one of my therapists in treatment once said this. We all have this choice when we're like, okay, I'm going to get clean. And it's like I can either make being an addict the worst thing about me or I can make it the best thing about me. And I definitely found – I feel like I got here with – I had to get there before I could do this podcast to really believe it myself. I'm like, okay, there's absolutely nothing – I'm afraid of anymore I'm not ashamed I'm like there's still some people in my in my life that I talk to a little bit that maybe I'm not sure if they've heard the rumors about me but I'm at a point where I'm like no you have to know this about me if you're gonna be close to me at all because it's the best thing about me like and you have to know it or else just move along
3: it's amazing how our perspective changes when we are exposed to new things and new places and new people, and I think that's a that's a beautiful uh, progression in your story from being you know uh, in treatment four months and feeling scared about the people you are around and that these are the kind of people I shouldn't be around to then being diving into connecting with those people and realizing no matter what our background is and how rough we might seem on the outside. We're all tender people who have a reason for being where we're at, mm-hmm. and that we can kind of love and support each other. And, and uh, that's a tough way <laughs> to learn that lesson being removed from your family for so long. But what a cool progression in your story to go from fear of others to connection with, with other people. You know, that's what pretty love great. About, what I love about
0: Tony's story is, um, and I think we forget about this, and even I do when we're talking about addicts. I think a lot of people think addicts don't have hearts. You know, that there's not somebody inside that's looking for help, that's crying, that's trying to run from something. We think of addicts as these people who steal from us, people who do bad things and and do all the other stuff. But the reality is addicts do have a heart. And if we can reach that heart and if we can help them, I mean, they are scary. Some of us are scary and some of us are not. Addicts come in all shapes, size and form. But the fact that you could sit down in there and talk with, you know, other addicts and realize you have a commonality, you have something in common and that, you know, you're finding out what they went through their story to get where they are. I mean, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I and I agree with Dr. Matt, the fact that you didn't want to be around them in your first rehab to where you wanted to love and help them in the four months in prison. I mean, I think that's a beautiful transformation.
2: Jail, not prison.
0: Jail. Yeah.
2: No, it wasn't. I – I ended up, they had me in this treatment while I was in jail, so I had to go to a little class in another room with another group of people who had drug problems. And I just dove into it, and I ended up starting teaching the class and running it. And and I, I felt like I made a difference, and that made it – okay, when I was finally released, I just had stacks of letters from people that were like – you make me have hope that there's good people out there. You make me have hope that I can do it. You're such a good example. You gave me tools that I think maybe I'll try that. And I just thought, okay, then, I mean, maybe my family would be okay. I think maybe they could sacrifice that four months for the help I gave the other people. Let's look at it that way.
3: I think that that's exactly how to look at it. And we don't, <clears throat> our plans in life uh, don't always work out the way we think. But by, you've said it a couple different ways, diving in to your situation, making the most out of your situation, you found those opportunities in an unlikely place. But gosh, who needs, it, who needs inspiration more than people that are at their rock bottom?
2: Right. Well, and you also face this choice in all of this of, am I going to be broken open or am I going to kind of guard myself and am I going to, you know, am I going to break open and just roll with it? And I had, like, all of, I had these high school friends that I had had forever. We had all our kids together, super close for 20 years, known some of them since fourth grade. Well, when I went into treatment, I haven't talked to him since. I've reached out to him. I've apologized. I've texted him on my birthdays. And really up until, like, I don't know, all I did was mourn. I lost all my friends. I'm yeah. not even worthy of these friends. They've known me for 20, 25 years, and they don't want well, anything that to do with says, me.
3: that says everything well, about was, them and not about you. But
2: it made me think, they've known me this long, and now they know this about me they don't want me. Anybody who just barely meets me now that I'm starting over, if this is all they're knowing about me, I'm never going to have any friends again. But I just thought, and I didn't. For a, a while, I just closed off. And I just thought, no one, you know, I don't relate to anybody. I don't. But through that and almost just releasing that, I I guess I have to find new people. Oh, the people that have been put into my life are so much more richer. They have so much more perception. We have so much more connection. I mean, I feel on a soul level. It's like, thank you for, I would never say moving out the bad. I, I, to this day, I will always like love those friends and miss them and be sad about that and always regret that my choices made me lose lifelong friends but instead i have to focus on Jeannie. and it's amazing the people that have been placed into my life i think for a reason and i've helped them with their husbands and their husbands and
0: i was one of the husbands she's really talking interesting about yeah i got all. that yeah you know and i and I, and we don't talk about my ex-wife on this a lot we talk about my perspective uh, and a lot of times, people will reach out on Facebook and ask about my ex wife. And the thing I can say about my ex wife Jeannie is, when this all went down, she was supportive. She encouraged my kids to keep a relationship with me. She could have done. A, she could have went a whole other way. And I remember her telling me one day, um, "Our kids need a dad, and you're their dad." And. She was great, and she's, she's a very loving person, and she's a good person to have in your corner. And I'm lucky she's in my corner. She's in your corner. And uh, I've, I'm very appreciative of that, and I'm appreciative of you stopping by and telling your story. So how long now have you been clean?
2: I On May 8th, it'll be
3: four years.
0: That's amazing.
3: That's a huge accomplishment.
0: And I can tell you now. Your kids absolutely love you and adore you. And when I get a chance to take them home from dance and I get to be around them, they're amazing kids. They are really good. And I say this about my kids, and I hope you can use this for your kids too. I never wanted my kids to go through this. And if I could change it, I would. But I can't. But I can tell you this. My kids are going to be warriors because of this. They're gonna have a better understanding of addiction, they're gonna have better tools, and they're gonna know love, compassion, and empathy, and they're gonna know a lot more because of it. And Absolutely. so I think your kids are gonna have the same kind of
3: leg up on life.
2: Absolutely.
0: Dr. Matt, last thoughts?
3: I, I just what I keep coming back to is the attitude. It's the it's an it's an optimist attitude. Mm-hmm. It's you lean into it, you make the most out of it no matter how bad it is. And I think your story exemplifies the the pattern that successful people have, which is eventually you just have to say, screw it, I'm going to make this work for me. And you said that a couple different times in your story, and I think that's su- such an inspirational uh, takeaway from your story is at some point you just have to make things work for yourself and lean into it and uh, give it your all. And obviously here you are today uh, with uh, a richer, fuller life uh, than than you maybe would have had otherwise. So uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing the, the, the personal details of your journey. And I'm positive that your goal will come to fruition, and that is that people will be inspired by listening to you today.
0: And I'll leave you with one more dumb meme from the recovery world, and it's very apropos. It's make your mess your message, and I think that's what you've done is make your mess your message. And I appreciate you stopping by, sharing your story and being on my side and being on my team. And I'll be ever on your team as well. So thank you very much. This is Project Recovery brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Don't forget, Project Recovery, KSL Podcast.
1: KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Colley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home.